you're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Morning, everybody. I'm the only member of my family that didn't go to Monash University. <laughs> so I'm married to Kim, uh, two daughters and two dogs. Uh, king Charles Cavalier and a pug that thinks he's a King Charles Cavalier. Uh, during, during the week, I work at Maranatha Christian School. So as, as already stated, or you've already worked out my secret, I'm reading off a piece of paper. So we're going we're gonna to read from 2 Corinthians chapter, chapter 1 and from verse, starting at verse 1 and finishing at verse 11. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and, our, and, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God that is at Corinth, with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia, grace to you and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God of our Father, of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, So through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when we patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you also share in our comfort." For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer, so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted to us through the prayers of many. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Bill. Good morning, City on a Hill. How are we doing this morning? Good to see you. Thanks so much for trekking out this way to this new venue uh, and for being with us at this new time as well. You made it. Uh, I know we've had a few rounds of applause already, but we should give uh, a round of applause to everyone who made this morning happen because it is new and it's the first time. The band, the logistics crew, let's put our hands together for them. Thank you, team. And before we do get into it, parents, I want you to take a, a, a deep breath in. Hey, it is okay if the kids are a little bit angsty this morning. I know it feels like we've gone from a four-bedroom house to a studio apartment temporarily (laughs) with one another. It's going to be messy. It's going to be noisy. It's okay. Kids, you're a blessing, and we love having you be a part of our church. Uh, And so it's going to be all right. 
Don't stress out too much. Uh, we're now going to dive in to 2 Corinthians, and we're going to see uh, over the next 12 weeks, really, the, the all-encompassing glory of the gospel. Uh, the power that we celebrated last week in the resurrection, it didn't stay in the grave. Actually, we're here in 2 Corinthians, and we're going to talk about it a little bit today. Uh, it is accessible to you and I today. Uh, it is in the message of the gospel. It has power in itself. Uh, and so we are going to be looking at that across the next 12 weeks as we start this journey. And so my job today is to kind of just introduce what that next 12 weeks is going to look like, but also to deep dive into chapter 1 that Bill read out for us just now. So if you do have your Bibles, whether uh, paper form or smartphone form, or you've got eyes to turn them to the screen, uh, there's an introduction in the beginning of this letter, which means I kind of get a, get a free pass from having to have this kind of engaging introduction. Let's let Paul introduce the book to us himself. He starts this way in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God that is at Corinth with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so straight out of the gate as we open up this letter, uh, we see something that is so obvious that we might pass it by if we didn't stop to think about it. We see that this is indeed a letter. And that implies to us that there is an author and there is a recipient. There is Paul, who is an apostle sent by Jesus to minister for him. And there is a church, Corinth. And a letter implies that there's actually a pre-existing relationship, doesn't it? There's already some kind of understanding between author and recipient. There is a relationship between Paul and the church in Corinth. And we actually, perhaps of all of Paul's relationships to the churches that he wrote to, know perhaps the most about his relationship to Corinth. In around 51 AD, uh, Paul was, was jet-setting through Europe he was on a missionary journey to tell as many people as he could about Jesus. And he came to this Greek city called Corinth. And there he started to proclaim, Jesus is alive, Jesus is risen. And people started to respond to him. We find out in Acts 18, there was a guy called Crispus, who sounds delicious, doesn't he? He sounds, <laughs> sounds tasty. That he and all his household responded. They heard about Jesus and they're like, we're in. And not only him, but, but a lot of other people responded as well. And so actually... In the 18 months that Paul spent doing that there in Corinth, dozens of people responded and it created a church. And that's how the church started in Corinth, through Paul telling people on his way about Jesus. But then Paul couldn't stay there forever. So he went off to a nearby city called Ephesus and he stayed there for three years. But while he was in Ephesus, it was, so cl it was close enough that he would get kind of word of how things were going back in Corinth in the church that he started. And he heard that there was actually a guy who was shacked up with his stepmom, and he thought, oh, well, I better write them a letter. Uh, and so Paul writes them a letter. He writes them a letter that he refers to in the letter that we know of as 1 Corinthians. So I think I've got a slide that, that we actually have a, a whole number of letters uh, written between Paul and Corinth. And we know that he wrote the first letter about three years after he planted the church because he refers to it in 1 Corinthians. Corinthians. And so he sends that back to them. And in 1 Corinthians, he says, hey, I'm going to send my apprentice, my, my 
the guy that I'm raising. I'm going to send Timothy to you there in Corinth, and he's going to let me know how you are going. And so Timothy goes to Corinth, and he actually comes back to Paul, and he tells Paul that actually, hey, it's actually worse than we thought. Corinth is a mess. And so Timothy tells Paul how Corinth is going, and so that leads to Paul to pick up the pen again and write the book that we know as 1 Corinthians. And we know that book, that it touches on all these different issues that he needs to sort out because he's heard from Timothy what things are like in Corinth. The father figure needs to step back in. And then at the end of Corinth, he says, hey, I'm going to come and visit you. And so Paul, we know, visits Corinth. And when he visits, we uh, can read between the lines that actually it was a really hard visit. It was a really painful meeting. There was some conflict there. And it sounds like someone stood up against Paul and tried to kind of rebuke him and be disrespectful toward the guy who planted the church. Paul talks about it being a painful meeting. And so Paul retreats and needs some distance. He needs some space to get away from the tension there in Corinth. And then he leaves and writes them another letter, a third letter, in between 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. He writes them again. And this time he, he like comes down hard. He like brings it to them. He rebukes them. He corrects them. He writes what he calls a, a, a scathing letter, a very hard letter to write. And then he bumps into another friend, a friend called Titus. And Titus, who's been in Corinth recently, is able to report back to Paul and say, hey, actually, that letter that you wrote, I know it was hard to write, but it has led to the church in Corinth being grieved into repentance. That actually, it's borne a lot of good fruit. They've actually come a long way, Paul. And that leads Paul to write to them again. What we have is 2 Corinthians, the book that we turn to today, which is really 4 Corinthians, uh, but we only know about two or have two of them, where Paul is, is overflowing with affection for these people and this church that he started. And so five years after having started it, he's got this letter that we have in our hands, in our phones, in our books, Bibles today, known as 2 Corinthians. And as he writes this there in, in the, mid six, uh, the mid-50s uh, uh, AD, uh, at this point, Corinth is a, is a thriving metropolis. It's, it's a little bit like what we might think of as Melbourne today. It was a thriving and prosperous city. It was right near an, an isthmus, which is kind of, you know, two peninsulas combined to create a little kind of cross-section across joining two seas. Uh, and that made Corinth was this kind of strategic place. This is a place of a lot of money because a lot of uh, exports and imports flowed in and out through it. Uh, and so that led to a very prosperous city, wealthy and cosmopolitan. Uh, you can imagine that Corinth had its own version of pa- the Paris end of Collins Street uh, somewhere. It also had the, the other end, the Docklands kind of end as well, with all the, the ships and the dockyards. It also had its own MCG because it hosted the Isthmian Games every two years there in Corinth. It was a big sporting city. It was a city of high culture, a lover of arts, and it particularly had a passion for speaking, for oratory, a passion for lifting up those who could speak really well, were really charismatic, were really persuasive. And because of that, a lot of that value had flowed in to the people at the church. And so this is part of why Paul needs to write, because he's heard that actually there are these celebrity pastors who are there in Corinth. There are these, these uh, super apostles, he, he calls them, in kind of an ironic way. And they are going around Corinth, and particularly to the Christians, telling them and manipulating them to believe things that are contrary to the gospel. These super apostles were discrediting Paul, because Paul was short. He apparently was even less than five foot. He was really short. And he wasn't particularly 
impressive. He was balding, apparently had a big nose. You know, he, he, he wasn't someone who you'd look at and think, man, this guy's, this guy's got his act together. He spoke very plainly, not like the people who were great lauded for their public speaking. And he didn't have the, the flashy, charismatic gifts of these celebrity pastors. He was never featured on the Instagram Preachers and Sneakers. He was never, never on Prophets and Watchers. You can look those up if you, if you want and explore or get shocked at the, the wider state of the church. You know, these, these celebrity pastors had the Sunday morning TV slots set up for anyone who woke up early on a Sunday morning. They had the Joel Osteen teeth going on. They had uh, that happening for them. It was, their, it was their preaching clips that went viral on social media. They had the book deals that went straight to the top of the charts at Kurong. Paul... Paul looked, Paul sounded like a loser. And on top of it all, he was always in jail. He was always in and out of trouble. He was always getting persecuted, whipped. He was in shipwrecks. He was was always finding himself in trouble. And these super apostles were saying, that means that Paul isn't legit. You 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 shouldn't listen to him. And that's actually a really relevant issue for our own day, as much as there's that whole context behind why they were thinking this at the time, isn't it that we live in a day where our world really cares about hypocrisy and the authenticity of the church? Just like that, we're often inside the church asking ourselves the question, is this or that ministry legit? You might have heard just a few weeks ago, this, this kind of came to the public fore when uh, parliamentarian Andrew Wilkie stepped up and he used his parliamentary privilege to expose some whistleblower documents about Hillsong and some of the, the lavish spending or the lifestyles that they had been living there in the high ranks of Hillsong. Now, Hillsong often get themselves in, in the media for, for other reasons, but here they were. It was kind of turned up a notch because it was a member of parliament doing it. Personally, some of it seems like a beat up. Some of it looks like it should be very legitimate questions asked. And it shows us that deep within the psyche of our society, we should see that actually the world is watching the church. And they're asking, are these Jesus people legit? Are these Jesus people legit? And our world sniffs out inauthenticity. Our world sniffs out hypocrisy. But that's also not just a question for the church, like capital C, like us together. It's also a question that I know you and I are also tempted to ask. Because deep in our personal psyche, all of us, particularly when circumstances go awry and become hard for us, all of us ask that question, is God really with me? Is God really for me? Is God really in this? Now, how would we know the answer to that question. How do we know what is a legitimate move of God, a legitimate moment when God is in it? Often to try to answer that, we, we, we try to look for things, have circumstances to, to hang our spiritual hats on, our assurance that God is indeed with us. So perhaps oh, if a lot of people are inspired by my sermon, I know that, that God must have been in it. If a lot of people are attracted to a particular event or a particular ministry. Oh, oh, God must be in it. If we're getting praise or if we're feeling positive and encouraged, oh, God must be in that. Or, and this is where our text goes for today, Paul approaches it from the, the opposite angle. If I'm suffering, 
And if I'm afflicted, and if I'm feeling almost at the point of death, he says, surely God can't be in that. Surely God isn't in those hard moments, in those difficult times. And so we just read that, you know, this, this is a letter to a specific people, a specific place from Paul to Corinth. But he also flagged there that it was actually, hey, send it wider. This is, this is going, going to the wider, the state of Achaia. Just like that, so too this issue speaks to issues at the time, but it actually speaks wider to your issues and to my issues, to our issues, and the heart of what it means to be a Christian, the heart of the gospel. And so 2 Corinthians is going to bring us back to that heart, to the heart of the gospel. And today we're going to do that by seeing what Paul says and how he speaks into our suffering, into our suffering. Now the church was susceptible particularly to some of the manipulations and deception of the super apostles because they weren't viewing their lives and Paul's suffering through gospel lenses. They were viewing it through worldly Lenses, just like how their, wor- their world might approach suffering. I was reading this week an, an article in the, the online version of Forbes magazine, and it was titled, Are You Asking the Right Question? And it told a, a story about a guy named Marty. Marty was an engineer for Motorola in the 70s, and he was tasked with the project of developing the next generation of the car radio telephone so that you could, you could make calls or receive calls in a car. And as he kind of approached this problem from a kind of design engineering perspective, he stepped back and he asked a different question. He thought to himself, you know, why when we want to talk to a person do we always need to call a place? Some of you who, like me, grew up in the 90s or before it, you might remember those, those anxious times as an early teenager of having to call your friend's home. And you're like, oh, oh, Mrs. Wilson, it's, it's Nick, is, is Mark there? And you have to kind of do that, that awkward kind of get through to the, 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 the gatekeeper to your friend. Phones always used to be attached to places. And so this one shift of the question led Marty to think, wait, what if we actually put phones in pockets of people or with, with people? And he, the, the first phone that came up with obviously didn't really fit in the pocket. It was a brick. I don't know if you've seen, you've seen them. But it led to the beginning of what we know today as the, the mobile phone. And that all started from getting the right perspective because he changed the question. Albert Einstein once said that if I had an hour to solve a problem and my life depended on it, I would use the first 55 minutes determining the proper question to ask. For once I know the proper question, I could solve the problem in less than five minutes. And I bring that up because when we are suffering, when we're in what Paul calls affliction, aren't we all so prone to ask questions? Why me? Where are you, Lord? When will it all end? We ask questions. And what I want to do today is look at our text and look at Paul's perspective of suffering and affliction. And what we're going to see is that he actually flips the perspective toward a gospel perspective. That actually changes the questions that we might ask when we're in the midst of suffering and Affliction. And so let's read uh, through our text, and I'm going to pull out three particular uh, gospel shifts that he makes. Let's look at verse 3 and 4. He starts out this way, uh, and as he often does, wants to speak to the issues that are going to come up again and again throughout the book. He says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction, with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted 
by God. And so remember the context, these super apostles are saying, hey, suffering, that's, that's, that's something that God is not in. And yet Paul comes along and he praises God for the very suffering that is being used to undermine his authority and call his credibility into question. And notice what he says. He doesn't speak of suffering or affliction as undermining his ministry. Rather, in part, suffering exists to fuel more ministry through and so you can kind of you could picture it like a, a, a pipeline of mercy here that Paul brings up. And he starts by describing God himself as the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. Now think about that. We've just spent 10 weeks in the book of Joshua. Joshua, there's a lot of justice, there's a lot of judgment, there's a lot of holiness. That same God, Father of mercies. God of all comfort. God's very character is that he longs to comfort his people. He longs to comfort his people. And so because of that, mercy and comfort flows from this God toward those who are suffering. And comfort is spoken about 10 times in this short little passage alone. And that comfort flows from the God of all comfort, in this case, to Paul, who's been suffering and who's been under an affliction. And maybe you're here today and you feel like, Paul, you're in a a moment or a season, chronic suffering. We know from the very first verse, God wants to comfort. God leans in when you're suffering. God gets closer God wants to be with you in your suffering. And it doesn't matter what kind of suffering it is, because we're told God wants to comfort you in all your affliction, in any affliction. And Paul has felt that personally. And this image of of, of what we see flowing through Paul shows us that when, when Paul feels that comfort from God, he doesn't kind of, he's not led to kind of cross his legs and get in some kind of namaste kind of cocoon of peace but as he receives that that comfort we're told why and where his mind goes or his heart goes when he feels that comfort god comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction father of mercies god of all comfort brings comfort to us so that through us we might be able to comfort those who are in any affliction. Now, it's already an incredible thought, isn't it? That, that God, the God who is there, God Almighty, is at work in our world in the frustrations, in the hardships, in the afflictions of life. But perhaps it's even more incredible that that same God, God Almighty, is at work in the hardships, in the afflictions, not just mysteriously working in the background through his providence, through his sovereignty. No, he's at work in those moments through you, through people, through the words, through the hugs, through the tears, through the shoulders to cry on, through through the encouragements, through people, people like you and people like me. And if I think personally about kind of my Christian journey, my Christian walk, I can... Remember times, God has blessed me, God has encouraged me, God has challenged me, God has comforted me, God has rebuked me. 
And yet, whenever I think about those moments that he's done that, it's not as if he magically showed up in a burning bush. No, it was through people and their comforts and their encouragements and their rebukes and their challenges. If you think about the people in your own walk with Jesus who have inspired you the most, who have encouraged you the most, who have kept you going the most, who have, who have whether it's been explicit or implicit, rebuked you the most to keep you on the straight and narrow, the people that have ministered to you most. It's not the people that have dazzled you with their great successes. It's not the people who have it all together, is it? I'm sure, I'm sure it's actually the people who have suffered the most. And in the midst of that suffering, they've shown their integrity, they've shown their credibility in the gospel. This is why, isn't it, that we in the Western world we get so inspired by the persecuted church, so inspired by the, the, the church in the, the third world. Because they have something, it looks like. They have something that we don't get to have in the midst of our comforts. Just the last engine room last month, I, I shared a story I'd heard about the, the Egyptian church. Uh, and it kind of typified why we do look up to the persecuted church they're suffering ministers to us. I heard a story where an Open Doors worker, and Open Doors is an organization that works with the persecuted church, they asked uh, one of the pastors there in, in Cairo about how we as the West, how we as the Western church could, could pray for the church there in Egypt, particularly being in a majority Muslim country, the persecution that was going to come. And the pastor responded uh, to that person by saying, they said, please don't pray for us. Pray with us. Because if you pray for us, you're going to pray for the wrong things. You'll pray that the church will be safe. You'll pray for persecution to cease. We're not praying for those things. We ask God for the salvation of Egypt. We ask that he'll draw millions of Muslims to Christ. We ask that we will be bold and clear in sharing our faith with Muslims. And we pray that when the inevitable persecution comes, we will not run away. We'll be faithful in that persecution, even if it costs us our lives. Will you tell your friends to pray these prayers with us? And you and I, we live in a world that, that tries to shape us as much as possible, as far away from suffering as we can get. Or that if we are in suffering, to, to retreat into ourselves, to see ourselves as, as great victims of that suffering that is oppressing and repressing us. But Paul here has a gospel focus. And so the first question in suffering that Paul flips is the question, why me? And he turns it into, who else? From why me to who else? Suffering doesn't lead him to ask, why me? Why is, why is this happening to me? It leads him to ask, who else is there that I can comfort? Who else is there that might be blessed by, by what I'm experiencing right now? Who else might this mercy and comfort flow through me to? And so a gospel perspective shows us that suffering doesn't limit God's work, it actually multiplies God's work. Then he continues. Let's read on in, in verse 5. He says, For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it's for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken. For we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. And so Paul transitions here to a, a deeper layer. 
Because he starts with that little word for, very important in these letters of Paul, that word for essentially meaning because the comfort pipeline works because in the same way that we suffer like Christ, we also get to share in the comfort of Christ. Now often we like focusing on the first half of that equation, don't we? We, 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 we quote to ourselves uh, that the promise of Jesus, hey, if they persecuted me, they will surely persecute you. Paul elsewhere says, you know, all who desire a godly life, to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Peter says, rejoice. Count it all joy when you share in Christ's sufferings. So whether it's persecution, whether it's more general suffering through, through health or stress, the brokenness of this world or our bodies, there's a sense that when we suffer, we actually share in the lived experience of Jesus in his suffering. But he didn't just say that. There's also, Jesus tells us, take heart, for I have overcome the world. He says, if anyone is going to give up houses or mothers or brothers or sisters, you're surely going to receive 100-fold and all the more in eternal life. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And so what we share with Christ isn't just the hard stuff. He actually promises us great reward. He promises us comfort. He promises us that we can come to him, that we can be with him and receive rest. And so when we put our trust in Jesus, we are so united with him that we get what he gets. So united with him that we get all the spiritual benefit, forgiveness, freedom from guilt and shame, his perfect righteousness and eternal life. But we also get, Paul is in effect saying, to share in his lived experience of both suffering like he suffered, but also comfort that he experienced. And so evidently, these, these super apostles of the first century, these celebrity pastors, they were propagating the idea that, that true Christianity would help you avoid suffering. In other words, true Christianity would help you be less like Jesus. And it's no surprise that the super apostles or the celebrity pastors of our own day have somewhat of a very similar theme to their message. Those who attract the most, those who sell the most, those who get the most speaking invitations at the flashiest, flashiest Christian conferences, they're the, the ones that subtly or not so subtly are propagating that, that same kind of idea today. That suffering is a curse. I remember once uh, at a church that, that I attended that kind of had these, had these inclinations, these, these leanings. I was, I was sitting in on a, on a training session uh, for, for Sunday hosts, for, for welcomers. And so someone was, was, was kind of telling us, downloading on us kind of the principles we needed to have if we were going to be good welcomers. And uh, as the, the leader of the training was speaking to the issue of, of a dress code for welcomers, like what, what you should wear if you are on that Sunday, uh, I remember her saying a particular line that has stuck with me in the 15 years since, uh, you need to dress like someone God would be proud of. You need to dress like someone God would be proud of. And even as a, as a young man, I knew, uh, alarm bells, alarm bells went off then. Now sure, looking presentable is good hospitality. It's a good thing to look presentable. But where she went wrong, wasn't it? She, she attached God's pride 
She attached God's affection. She attached God's value, God's heart toward looking like you have it all together. That's really what super apostles, what celebrity pastors might be doing today with our suffering. We have the propensity, just like Corinth, to think that God is repelled by suffering. That God is distant in our suffering. Instead, Paul tells us, hey, that, that's the opportunity to receive God's comfort. That, that's the moment when, when God enters in even closer. That's, that's the, 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 like a magnet that, that God is attracted to. God is drawn to sinners and sufferers alike. And so Paul flips the question again. I remember a season in my own life where I felt that very personally. In, in 2018, some of you were part of our church then. It was just a couple of months after having planted our church. And you think you're this really like strategic, high-octane church planner kind of guy. Uh, but then suffering came. And in the early months of, of 2018... It felt like blow after blow for, for Jules and I and our family. Uh, we lost a, a child through miscarriage. Uh, I think about a week later, we lost a personal uh, close family member through uh, cancer that they didn't find until she passed away. Uh, then a week after that, uh, Jules's brother, 32 years of age, was diagnosed with stage 4 bowel cancer. And a few months later, uh, he would pass away. Uh, and then uh, a month or two after that, we got pregnant again, which is great, but Jules had hyperemesis and was bedridden for her pregnancy. And I remember uh, in, you know, in many ways, in, in my kind of sheltered life, that's the moment that feels like blow after blow after blow, where the, where the oxygen of life gets sucked out of you. Every other loss was another moment to ask, God, where are you in this? Where are you in this? But I remember that it was actually in that darkest, praise God, that we planted a church a few, few months before because it was, it was the church, people like yourself, who ministered to us, who comforted us, who cared for us, who encouraged us. And it was through people like you, the, the mercy and the comfort of the Lord was there for us, that God was close to us in that time through his people, through our brothers and sisters. And so Paul's gospel perspective, the next question that he flips is not to ask, where are you, God, in suffering? But really to say, even in this, you're at work. Even in this darkness, God, you could be using this to minister to me. Even in this, you could be at work in the world. From where are you to even in this? In the gospel, suffering and affliction point us beyond ourselves to channel God's mercy and comfort toward others. In the gospel, suffering and affliction highlight to us the depths that God is going to go to be close to his people, to strengthen and comfort us. And so in reality, the super apostles, they had it all wrong. God isn't repelled by suffering. He's attracted to sinners and sufferers alike. And then Paul has one final flip to make. We read in verse 8, in the first half of verse 9, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. 
And so Paul describes this own experience that he had, and we don't know exactly all the details about the experience, whether it was more persecution, whether it was personal health, whether it was something else, whatever it was, he, and likely Timothy along with him, they were so utterly burdened, we're told, they wanted to die. They were at the point of thinking death would be better. Death would be a way out. And knowing Paul and the gospel, often, like this is the guy who wrote the book of Philippians, who was in jail and said, I rejoice! I'm content in all circumstances. And it's that same guy who's saying at this point, I wanted to die. And so that gives us a sense of how bad this must have been. Maybe you've been in that position at some point. Maybe you're in that place even right now. And if not right now, and don't we all know as we see it around us, it's coming. That all of us are one phone call away from life-shaping news that's going to cripple us. One doctor's appointment away from this, this moment. Feeling so utterly burdened. So at that point of despair. So this is why this, this kind of stuff matters. Because God, through two Corinthians, he's equipping us for that moment, for that phone call, for that doctor's appointment. He's equipping us to get there with a gospel perspective. And then Paul tells us, as he's in this mindset, something that we would love to have about every single circumstance we're in, but he tells us he knew what was going on. Because he says in the second half there of verse 9, why he felt this way. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You know, last week we celebrated the resurrection of Jesus on Resurrection Sunday. You know what we're doing today? This Sunday we're celebrating the resurrection of Jesus on Resurrection Sunday. You know, next Sunday you should come back here at 10 a.m. because we're going to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus on Resurrection Sunday. Every single Sunday is Resurrection Sunday for the people who follow Jesus. The resurrection is not, some, not only some historical event an event which pushes through to every single day and every single thing in our life, including how we suffer. Scholar D.A. Carson once said, you are not suffering from anything that a good resurrection can't fix. The resurrection changes everything. It fixes, it impacts everything. And Paul says here that his suffering was so that he might be able to Rely on God who raises the dead. Now, God, Paul is so radically resurrection-minded that anything that happens in his life is filtered through the reality that Jesus is alive. Jesus is risen. And that means that Jesus will raise us up with him as well. So if you're new here to church today, you're new to this whole Christian thing, let me, let me tell you the good news of, of why it matters that Jesus rose from the dead. The good news is that, that you and I were created purposefully by God. And we were created in this world that God also purposely, purposefully created. And he created us that we might live with him and for him. And yet, you and I, by nature and choice, all of us have ignored that purpose. We've gone our own way. We've done our own thing. We've paved our own journey, our own path. We've created our own moral standard. We've lived to that instead of his. 
We've walked our path instead of his. And yet the good news is that God loved you so much. And such was that relationship he had with you upon creating you that he wanted to come and get you back. That is... Lou said before that he wanted to run out to us and and pursue us. And so he did so by sending his son Jesus in the flesh, in real time, in real space, in history. And that Jesus lived the perfect life in our place for us. That Jesus died a sacrificial death in our place, bearing the punishment we deserve for going our own way. And then Jesus rose again victoriously, rising against our great enemy, Satan's sin and death. And so Jesus' resurrection is the first fruits of what God is doing everywhere in bringing everything back to Him, bringing people from death to life. And when you trust in Jesus, you show that 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 resurrection power has hit you because your heart has been raised from death to life. And that life changes now how we live. We live with Jesus and we live for Jesus We live looking forward to the day that that resurrection power will touch everything and all things will be made new. And so the final perspective shift here that Paul has is to turn the question, when will it end, God? Into, when's that all going to get started, God? The resurrection is coming. Deliverance is coming. Suffering turns us in on ourselves, Sucks everything in like a vacuum. We can't handle that. We can't cope. Our normal way to think about that is just just get this away from me. When when, when will it end? And for Paul, suffering reminds him God raises the dead. God is in the business of turning things from death to life. Glory is coming. New bodies, new relationships, new world. And so suffering is a reminder to us that this world is not our home. We were made for more and we are going to more. And so he says, on him we've set our hope that he will deliver us. And so we see here in chapter 1 the big idea of 2 Corinthians, that the gospel shows us that in weakness is true strength, that in suffering is true glory. In the gospel, suffering points us beyond ourselves. We become a channel for God's mercy and grace. No longer why me, but who else? In the gospel, suffering highlights the depths of God's willingness to work with us and in us. From where are you to even in this, you're at work, God. And in the gospel, suffering points us home for the one who raises the dead and who's going to raise us up with him from when the little end to let's get this started. When is it going to get started? And so the authentic Christian life doesn't reject or ignore suffering. It sees it as a tool in which God is working for his glory. Now as we finish, Paul gets very practical. In verse 11, he talks about just just encouraging, imploring the Corinthians to pray for him. Please pray for me and this moment that we are in. And so I thought we could get just as practical as that. Uh, I'm going to do that right now. Paul says, You also must help us by prayer, so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. And so, I want to help you right now, if you are in one of these moments of suffering. Maybe it's been a 
today. Maybe it's been a long time. Maybe it's been chronic for a very long time. I'm going to ask that you be so bold. Uh, as a, wherever, wherever you are right now, if you can, we'd love for you to stand up if you see yourself and your circumstances right now and where you are right now in something you would describe as suffering. Whatever it is, it's all affliction, any affliction. If you could just stand up or if you can't stand up, raise your hand. Uh, because we as a church, we want to pray for you. We want to minister to you. We want to be here for you and fulfill what Paul says about the others. So I'm going to ask others to reach out their hands toward those who are standing or lifting up their hand uh, so that we might pray for you. So would you, would you do right, that right now? You don't, we're not going to ask what it is that you're going through, whether it's physical, whether it's financial, whether it's emotional, whether it's relational, whatever it is, please right now, if you want prayer, please stand or raise your hand. Awesome. Thank you. And brothers and sisters, if you are nearby somebody who is standing or who is raising their hand, would you just reach out your hand toward them? Because we're going to pray for you. We're going to minister to you right now in the way that Paul asks us to. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you for the gospel. Lord, we thank you that you have not left us in our own sin, in our own death. Lord, you have come that you might bring us back to yourself and you might raise us to new life and we thank you that that has ramifications for everything including the circumstances that are going on in the lives of your children in this room right now lord i thank you for the people standing the people with their hands raised lord you know them and you know what is going on and you know what is is, is afflicting them at this time and lord we thank you for this promise that you move closer to people in these moments. We thank you that you lean in to comfort because you are the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. And so, Lord, we pray now for our brothers and sisters. We pray that you would strengthen them. We pray that you would heal them. We pray that you would be so ministering to them right now that in this moment you might shift their perspective to see your glory in the midst of what they're going through to receive your strength in the midst of their weakness. Lord, would you remind them of the meaning that is in what might feel to them like senseless suffering. Help them with their gospel perspective. Help them set their minds on uh, the resurrection to come and on the ways that you've already started that in their life by their being here today, by their desire to be right with you and to trust in Jesus. bend them outside of themselves and use this. Use them as conduits to minister to others. Use them as people who are going to glorify the, the, the truth and the, the reality that you are close to them even here right now. That you're in this with them and that you are leading them through this to glory because you raised the dead. And so strengthen our brothers and sisters right now. Bless them. Have your hand upon them. May we be the church and the family that they need to continue to remind them to the glorious realities of the goodness of your gospel, we pray in Jesus' mighty name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.